Well, welcome, everybody. Good to see all of you. Um, we're starting 2 Samuel today. So um, I want to introduce that. The notes that we sent out, this goes back, you know, quite a few months ago, but both 1 and 2 Samuel were together in those notes. So you might want to have those, and not this week necessarily, I'm going to read a little bit, but there are some charts and there is a, there is a, a, a map and there is a, a picture that I will use when we look at when David as Joab conquered Jerusalem. I want to talk about that. So it's just put that in the back of your mind, either get it on your phone or have it on your computer, wherever you put things like that, if that's of interest. If it isn't, don't worry about it. What I'd like to do is um, I'm going to read some of the introduction that I wrote in your notes to Second Samuel. And I just want to kind of give you the overview of what to expect. I think I, almost all of you have been pretty regularly through our study of 1 Samuel. So 2 Samuel immediately picks up <laughs> with what happened at the end of 1 Samuel. Of course, Saul was killed. He committed suicide on Mount Goboa. Jonathan was killed and, and so on. So originally, if you go way back to the beginning of our study, when we looked for 1 and 2 Samuel were together one book. Later in, in the history of how they organized the Old Testament books, they separated the two. But I want to read a couple of things from the introductory page. If you have it, great, just follow me. If not, just listen carefully. I will give you a quiz at the end of this, this reading. The rise of David as king marked the beginning of Israel's golden age. And what we are going to study in Second Samuel is that marker. Together with his son Solomon, who you know follows him, obviously, Israel became a wealthy, formidable power in the eastern Mediterranean. I might add uh, to that, there is, uh, over the last 150 years in archaeology, uh, there have been many, many documents found in the Assyrian Empire, in the Babylonian Empire, uh, in, in Moabite and, and uh, Ammonite uh, uh, ruins, references to Israel, references to the kings were ruling at that time. So there's an enormous amount of document documentary evidence of the supremacy of David's kingdom at this time. By any measure, this is the golden age of Israel's history. And so that's why what we're studying is going to be important. Over the nearly 80-year period, David will rule for 40 years. Solomon will rule for 40 years. They established a kingdom that stretched from the Sinai, you know where that is today, to the Euphrates River. In addition, the 12 tribes of Israel were truly unified around the king and the temple in Jerusalem. Finally, God established an unconditional covenant with David. That covenant consists of an eternal throne, kingdom, and dynasty, which would be fulfilled by David's greater son, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. That covenant is in chapter 7 of this book. I'm going to spend a lot of time on that chapter. Next paragraph. The historic context of David's rise to power is important. As uh, Eugene Merrill, I studied under him in Semitic languages, makes clear the division between Judah and the rest of the tribes of Israel had characterized Saul's reign. In fact, 1 Samuel presents Israel and Judah as virtually two separate identities within Israel, pursuing two separate de de destinies. For this reason, a civil war ensued shortly after Saul's death. We're going to read about that in the early chapter. The leaders of Judah logically and sensibly declared king, David king in 1011 B.C. He will rule from Hebron for seven years. 
then he's going to have Joab, his military commander, conquer Jerusalem, and that will be the capital of the entire kingdom for an additional 33 years. Since heaven was in Judah's land grant, David understood that he needed to establish a new capital. He could not show favoritism toward Judah alone. That is a very important sentence. He must show that he is not only king of Judah, but of all 12 tribes. And that's going to be you're going to study as we get further into the book how David artfully and diplomatically pulls that off. He chose Jerusalem, a Jebusite city. No tribe controlled the city, so Joab, following David's orders, took the city. We're going to read a lot about that. I'll show you some maps, and we'll talk a lot about it. Masterful, incredible strategy to conquer that city. They went up an outside watershed into the city and conquered it from within. In 1004, that's 1004 BC, Jerusalem became Israel's capital, and David built his palace there. Receiving the cedar wood and materials from Hiram, king of Tyre, a major trading city in the eastern Mediterranean. Wisely then, David had the Ark of the Covenant moved from Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem. Now, you've got to go back in 1 Samuel. After, after the Philistines had captured the Ark and they rescued the Ark, it stayed in Kiriath-Jerim for almost 12 years until David brought it there. Briscoe argues, another historian of, of this material, in one stroke, David united both the political and religious loyalties of the tribes and paved the way for a royal theology centered on David, Jerusalem, David, and his descendants. As I mentioned a moment ago, David will rule from Jerusalem for 30 years, um, 33 years. So you take the 33 in Jerusalem plus the 40 in Hebron, he rules for 40 years. Uh, he's a remarkable uh, individual. And as we studied in, in 1 Samuel, much of from chapter 17 on to what we finished last week, God has been preparing David, giving him leader, giving him opportunities to exercise his leadership, growing his character, deepening his faith. With Saul dead, which we read last week, David will now become the king. But not everyone accepts that. There is going to be a civil war. And that civil war is one of Saul's sons is going to claim the north, and there's going to be a, a brief civil war. We'll read about that. Uh, uh, not this week. We won't get to that. Okay, there are just some introductory thoughts. I wanted to kind of give you a, a big picture of, of what is going on here. David is um, David is probably – I'm not sure I want to say it that way. Let me put it this way. David is one of the most important characters character figures of the Old Testament. In terms of Jesus, he's probably the most important. And what, what I mean by that is the genealogies in, in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 4 of Jesus connect Jesus with David. He, Jesus is called the son of David. And the covenant, which we will study in chapter 7, the covenant that God made with David, it's an unconditional unilateral covenant, is only fulfilled in Jesus. Because what, Christ, what God promised to David in that covenant, David doesn't fulfill it. Solomon doesn't fulfill it. And I guarantee you that remaining kings of Judah do not fulfill it. So you leave the Old Testament, who's going to fulfill this covenant? There's no evidence. And so that's why when Christ shows up, the very first verse of the Bible, Matthew 1.1 1, 1, says, this is genealogy of the Messiah. Son of David, son of Abraham. 
So you open the New Testament and immediately see, now I know who it is. It's Jesus. Of course, that, that framework that the Old Testament theology creates, especially the Davidic covenant, is, is clear as you read the, the Gospel of Matthew, because the first 10 chapters of Matthew are systematic, well-organized proofs, proofs that Jesus has the right to claim the Davidic throne. And that's the way Matthew organizes his epistle. That's what he wants to prove. And he does it uh, quite remarkably. All right. Uh, I took about 15 minutes to kind of introduce this. Uh, you sort of with me? Okay. So we have a big story following God's leading of him. He's brilliant, and he's smart, and he's wise, but all of that comes from God. Yeah, isn't it? Well, God gifted him, but placed him with his giftedness in this situation where all that God has prepared him for. David is David is the the classic example of someone whose life is like this, but regardless of where he is, he always come back comes back to his relationship with God. I mean, he will fail, and he, we're going to read in chapters eleven and twelve uh, his, his lowest point in his life. But uh, he comes back to God is with a contrite, repentant heart and is restored to fellowship. The effects of that sin are terrible. He, will, he destroys his family. He literally destroys his family. And the effect on the kingdom is dismal, as you will see. But his relationship with God is restored. And that illustrates the point. If you, as a believer who walks with God, if you choose rebellion against God in your walk with him, there will be consequences. He will restore the fellowship. He will restore the intimacy. But there will be consequences, tragically. And that's one of the aspects of studying David. I'd like to start chapter 1 then and, and read it. This is a fascinating chapter because, you know, there were no cell phones. There was no social media. There were no telephones. So Saul has died up on Mount Gilboa. David's down in Hebron. That's a fair distance. David will hear about that. And the interesting part of chapter 1 is how he hears about it and what he does with the person from whom he hears this news. That's part of the, the point. Now remember, there, originally these two books were together, so it's just natural to read. After the death of Saul, we just read about it last week, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. Remember, that's part of what we had read earlier. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn, dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, where do you come from? He said, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. He answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. David did not know that. Now he hears it. And David said to the young man, how do you know that Saul and Jonathan are dead? That is a reasonable and legitimate question. Because there are a lot of people could say that. Because David knew what was going on in the Jezreel Valley. He knew the battle there. He knew what the Philistines were doing. So, in effect, it's almost like he's saying, I want the proof that they are dead. And the young man said, who told him said, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. 
And there was Saul leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him, meaning the Philistine chariots and horsemen. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And he said, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? Answered him, I'm an Amalekite. He said, Stand beside me, kill me, for anguish has seized me, yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown from on his head and the armlet that was on his arm. It, it went roughly here. It's kind of a rather staple thing for a military commander to wear. And I brought them here to my Lord. Now, what that Amalekite just said in verse 9 and 10, is that true? No, it's not true. It's a lie. That is an absolute fabrication. <laughs> so uh, let's stop for a minute. Why do you think he tells this story? And perhaps, yeah, give him a reward. I mean, his expectation is David is going to be thrilled with this news. And he did give David, and that's what you see there at the end of verse 10. He did give David incontrovertible proof that Saul's dead. <coughs> so he was on Mount Gilboa. But what he said in this imaginary dialogue between him and Saul did not occur. So presumably, what he saw was Saul fall on his sword. And he, being the kind of individual he was, I see a great opportunity for self-elevation on my part. So he took the arm, arm of Saul's arm, and took his crown and ran to Hebron. Excuse me, ran to Ziklag, where David is. So the, the, the interesting thing about this up to verse 10 is, one, David did not know Saul and Jonathan are dead. Now he knows, and he does have proof. He has the crown and, and the armor and so on. Now what's David going to do? Is he going to reward this guy? Is he, going to, is he going to further interrogate this guy? What is he going to do? So David took, took hold of his clothes and tore them. So did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. This is a marvelous example of shepherd leadership. He is showing genuine grief, and he is also modeling, I'm not sure I want to use that word, but I'm not sure what else to say, but he, he wants people to see who are with him, and these 600 men that are loyal to him as well as others, that he's genuinely grieving about this. And so it's really interesting, man, that David is not triumphant here. <clears throat> David isn't jumping up and down saying, finally he's dead. Oh, boy, good. Now it's over. Well, if he would have done that, I would have understood that, wouldn't you? Because Saul had been chasing him for over 10 years around Judea in the wilderness. I mean, he had every right to jump up and down and be excited. Finally, it's over. Finally, the Lord has brought this. That's not what he does. This is his close friend, Jonathan. And despite all that Saul had done, he was still the Lord's anointed. So this is, this is almost unheard of in the context of the ancient Near Eastern world. 
to have a successor genuinely grieve his predecessor who had time after time after time time to kill him. David is looking at this through the grid of God's sovereignty. And David then said to the young man who told him, where did you come from? I'm a, he said, I am a sojourner and a Malachite. Now, that's, that's really an interesting word there. Uh, I read from the ESV translation, as you know. They're translating that Hebrew word sojourner, which is a correct translation. But he's an Amalekite, which you, you know who they are. But he's a sojourner. What that means is his father settled in Israel. Because that, when he's a sojourner, he's not a citizen, he's not a Jew, he's not an Israelite or anything like that. But his father has settled in Israel. We have no anything about him. And he is the son of someone who is sojourning. Sometimes that word is connected with the word alien, not from outer space, but alien in terms, he's not part of the covenant nation of Israel. But it's, I like the use of the term, the way to translate it, sojourner, because it's making this clear communicate, communicative truth. I'm not a Jew. I'm not an Israelite. I'm not under the law. I'm not under the Mosaic Covenant. I am not circumcised. I'm a sojourner. I'm an Amalekite. David said to him, how is it? that you were not afraid to put your hand out to destroy the Lord's anointed. Because remember, David doesn't know whether he's telling the truth or not. David doesn't know that. So what's David focusing on? That he, this Amalekite, had the audacity to kill the king. And as David has referred to Saul throughout 1 Samuel, from chapter 17 on, Saul is the Lord's anointed. That is, that is significant in the sense that David is recognizing the sovereignty of God. He is the Lord's anointed, he's king because the Lord wants him to, and the Lord is going to remove him from power. I'm not going to do it. Go back to 1 Samuel 24 and 1 Samuel 26. There's two opportunities he had to assassinate Saul. So that's how David, he doesn't know that this guy's lying. All he knows is Saul's dead and he's telling me he killed him. So what does he tell, what does he tell his soldiers to do? Execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said, it's a declaration, it's a pronouncement. Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord. And maybe, I don't know that for sure, but maybe some of you are saying, wait a minute, that's a little bit unfair, isn't it? I mean, after all, David. <laughs> so, you know, we do not know how much insight David had into this guy's motivation, what he's doing. He is focusing on one thing. You had the audacity to kill the anointed of Yahweh and brag about it. You have lost the right to live. And he uses this. This, this covenantal language, your blood be on your head. You have committed a dastardly act, and you are accountable for that. And in God's economy of justice, it is important for you to lose your life for what you've done. 
David believed in capital punishment. Jim, uh, on the, on the uh, Saul, didn't Saul ask He did, and his armor bearer wouldn't do it. So then he fell on his sword, but then the armor bearer also fell on his sword, tragically, but that's correct. So again, I'm certain David will find out about this truthfully, what happened. But David isn't focusing where this guy, you know, the fact, he's not focusing on anything. He's just trying to one thing. You have told me, and in effect have bragged it, you killed the Lord's anointed. Therefore, you lose the right to live. From David's vantage point, this is an act of talionic justice. He was, he, David, was obligated to do this. Is there any pushback? Any, do you follow what I'm saying? You, I want you to process this through the grid of how David is looking at this. Well, he did lie to David, didn't he? He did lie to David. That's correct. Woody, it's good to hear your voice. That's correct. Well, thank you. I just found it again. <laughs> well, we're, we're glad you found it. All right. Now let's move on to the next part of chapter one, which starts with verse 17. This is David's lament. This is a song. It's poetry. And David lamented with his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son, and had said, this shall be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. Now, we, the, the book of Jashar is referenced several times in the Old Testament, but we don't have it. So it wasn't canonical. You know what I mean when I say canonical? It wasn't inspired. So it's not preserved. We do not have any copies of this book. But we learn two things here from what's in verse 17 and 18. Number one, David, what he writes, this lament, this poetry, this song, is preserved in the Chronicles. The book of Jashar was a chronicle. Uh, do you know what I mean when I use that word? Every every king, every leader kept a chronicle. You might call it like a diary. But everything that he did that day, his chronicle would write it down. So that's what this is. Secondly, please note that David once it taught to the children of Judah. This now was a part of the curriculum. They had a McGuffey's reader that included this lament. Now, some of you, a lot of you aren't very old. I actually am the oldest person here. McGuffey reader is really an important part of our heritage in the 19th century. Nobody knows what it is today. That was how people used God's word, teach kids how to read. Poems and all kinds of reading stuff. I'm, I'm being funny and silly here. But the important point is David... David wanted this taught. Why? Why would he want this taught? This lament, we haven't read it yet. We're about to start reading it. But, you, you know, you, you think about that just a minute. Why would he want this? Because he's now the king. He, he's about to be crowned king. He's the king. And everything that had, had been such horror for him the last ten over 10 years is over. He should be rejoicing. This is not a rejoicing hymn. This is a lament. 
This is marvelous example of a shepherd king. People of Israel grieve, grieve over them. And so what he's going to do is he's going to be a model for the people of Israel. When the Lord's anointed dies, we grieve. It is important for me as the head of the nation to lead the nation in mourning and grief. Honestly, it's just absolutely stunning because in I mean, we just have loads of these in all the stuff we found in archaeology over the, over the centuries. But where, you know, when one king becomes a new king, he doesn't do this. It's triumphant, rejoicing. Yay, finally, this guy's finally dead, and I'm the king, and it's great. Now, what do you haven't seen? What I alone are going to solve all our problems, et cetera, et cetera. That's not what David does. So he's leading the nation in legitimate mourning and grief and lament and does it with triumphant language. The thesis of this little lament is how the mighty have fallen. It appears several times. It marks off it marks off the hymn or the piece of poetry here. Look at the first verse, which is verse 19. This is part one of the lament. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. That's the theme of this lament. Tell it not in Gath. Where's Gath? That's a Philistine city. Goliath was from Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ascalon. Where's Ascalon? Another Philistine city. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exalt. We've seen that before. That term, uncircumcised, means these people are outside the covenant. We are not going to give them a chance to repeat because this was part of the battle for the Jezreel Valley that the Philistines won. Continuing, verse 21, you mountains of Gilboa, remember that's where Saul died, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty have was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil, from the blood of the slain, from the from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided, father and son. They were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions, all figurative language. Your you daughters of Israel weep over Saul. You clothed you luxuriously in scarlet. Put ornaments of gold on your apparel. During part of Saul's reign, there was prosperity. So that's part one. It's a lament, mourning, grief, for the mighty have fallen. The leaders of Israel are dead. Second verse Second part, verse 25, here's the theme again. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother John. Very pleasant have you been to me. <clears throat> your love to me is extraordinary, surpassing the love of, of women. Now, LGBTQIA people say, see, Jonathan and David had a homosexual relationship. That is not what this is saying. 
It is saying what is, is, is true perhaps of many of your relationships with other men. You have dear brothers who you care deeply about, who have played an important role in your life. And you could say that of them. That's what David is saying. He's summarizing the very important relationship he had with Jonathan. Because remember, Jonathan was the heir. He was Saul's oldest. He was the heir. And Jonathan said, God's will is you're going to be king, not me. And so it's just, it's, it's a remarkable affirmation of that relationship that he had with Jonathan. That's all it is. And then the third stanza is just repeating how the mighty have fallen third time and the weapons of war perished, meaning Israel's weapons of war. So I, I always I studied this over, over many, many years. I've taught this a number of times as well. I want you to see this for what it is. It is the, the king, he's new now, modeling the shepherd role he is to have as king, according to Deuteronomy 17. Marvelous illustration of that. This isn't triumphant. Yippee, finally it's over. Now I'm king. You don't see that. He wants the people to genuinely mourn and grieve. And it's also sending this message. I did not become king by assassination. I waited on the Lord. Now I'm king in the Lord's timing by his sovereign direction. Unlike anything else in the ancient Near Eastern world, because duplicity and assassinations and all that stuff was common in the ancient world. Not with David. He made it clear, 1 Samuel 24, 1 Samuel 26, I will not become king by means of assassination. So he's modeling so much for the nation here, and I really wanted to stress that. Can we talk about now, these people that are really bad and tender, he was not his son. He was not to be added to the same menu of faith as his father, Saul. No, not at all. And, and so when we get to heaven, everybody in this room, are we going to see Jonathan? Yes, absolutely. Oh, there's no doubt, absolutely. Jonathan, he was a strong man of faith. We've seen it several times in our studies there in First Samuel. Uh, he, he understood the content of God's promise to David, and he deferred to God in that decision and remained. And that word chesed, that covenant loyalty, is used twice of Jonathan and David's relationship. Uh, so, no, yeah, absolutely. He's, he's one of the guys I'm going to sit down. I have my yellow notepad, and I want to take a lot of notes as I interview him. I'm kidding. I'll, that'll never happen, but I hope to talk to him. But, yes, absolutely. He'll be my bad. Yeah, yeah, there you, go. there you go. All right. Chapter 20. Chapter 20. Chapter 2 is Judah the tribe of Judah, the land grant of Judah, taking proactive decision to bring David to Hebron and make him king. The question is, will the rest of the tribes accept that? 
And remember, Judah, and, and, I mean, you have to look at some of the maps and stuff we've talked about before, but Judah's land grant is the farthest southern land grant. It's farther south. The, the border of Judah is the Negev Desert. So it's the south. And immediately north of that is the Benjamin land grant. That's where Jerusalem is. And Ephraim and all the rest of the tribes. These tribes had been extremely loyal and to a degree devoted to Saul. Will they accept David as king? The answer is no. And there will be a civil war. But let's look first at how Judah acts. This is 15 years after Samuel had anointed David king, way back in 1 Samuel 16. 15 years. Fighting Goliath, being in Saul's court, marrying Saul's daughter, and being chased by Saul all over the wilderness for over 10 years. Now it's over. Saul's dead. And David inquired of the Lord. Isn't this great? He's not going to act. Because he would have, it would be reasonable and logical for him to immediately leave Ziklag, move into Judah, and say, Here I am. Finally, I'm ready to be king. Okay, guys? That's not what he does. He says to the Lord, Notice it's Yahweh. Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? There's now a power vacuum. It's all dead. There's no king. The monarchy is in, in, in jeopardy. The Philistines have split Israel in half. They've conquered the Jezreel Valley. Should I go into Judah? Should I go to any of the cities in Judah? Lord, it's reasonable for me to do that, but I do not want to run ahead of you. The Lord said to him, go. Then what does David say? To which shall I go? Which city? Notice how specific David's praying is. What has David learned? I do not, I do not run ahead of the Lord. I don't want to be presumptive. I want to make sure that this is what God wants me to do. That's Deuteronomy 17 being lived out. This is a shepherd king, dependent on the Lord, following his direction, and not acting until he's convinced this is what God wants me to do. So what does the Lord say? To Hebron. And on several of the maps that I've given you in the packet, you can see where it is. It's the most important city at this time, about roughly 1,000 B.C., at this time, it's the most important city in Judah. It was a city associated with Abraham. Why? That's where Abraham and Sarah buried. And so is Isaac, by the way. In addition, Hebron was a Levitical city. Remember those? There are 48 of them. That's where the Levites reside, and they would teach the people the law. So Hebron, it, at this time in, in the south, where Judah is, it's probably the most important city in the South. Certainly the most important city in Judah. So that makes sense. But David, and if David would have been acting on his own apostle, that's where he would have gone. But he wants to make sure this is what the Lord wants him to do. 
So what does he do? Verse 2. So David went up there, meaning to Hebron. His two wives, Hinnom, Jezreel, Abigail, the widow of Nabal, Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household. Now remember, you got to go back to first number. That's 600 men. That's that inner core that has been loyal to David at least 10 years. Because they had kind of joined David down in the caves at Adullam, where David was hiding out from Saul. And the men of Judah came. Now, when, that, when it says men of Judah, that doesn't mean every single male in the tribe. These would be the tribal and clan leaders. <clears throat> and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. David is 30 years old. It is 1011 B.C. A major, enormously important threshold has been crossed. Saul's dead. David is the king, but only in Judah. He's 30 years old. 15 years earlier, when he was 15, Samuel anointed him to be king. It took 15 years for God to prepare him for this moment which teaches you and me something. God takes his time in preparing his leaders. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul. You got to go back to the previous chapter. You know, I mean, the, the last chapter, First Samuel is what I mean. Remember Jabesh Gilead, they took Saul's body. It had been beheaded. But took Saul's body and buried it in their city of Kiriath-Jerim. That's over on the east side of the Jordan River and so on. So David hears that. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show chesed, steadfast love and fellowship to you. Now listen, listen I want you to see. This is very shrewd on David's part. This is an incredible stroke of diplom diplomatic genius. Some of you are looking at me with a deer in the headlight type. And I don't want that to occur. Roughly, here's Hebron. Roughly, here's Kiriath-Jerim. David has the loyalty of Judah. Does he have anyone else's loyalty at this point? No. Now, it makes sense for him to honor the people of Jerem Judah, who had, uh, David Gilead, who had rescued uh, roughly, Big uh, Sean is roughly right about here, but they're, they're heroes. They did a great thing, but David, David wants to honor that. He, he, he wants to Call down God's blessing. That's the word chesed and favor and all that that we just read about. But this is also a shrewd diplomatic move on his part. He's now going to have the loyalty of this little segment on the east side of the Jordan River, where loyalty to David doesn't exist. So it's it's it's, it's shrewd. And, I mean, it's genuine. He wants to honor these people. But David isn't isn't dumb either. 
He sees the significance of doing this in terms of the economy and the, the division among the tribes. Because this would be in the, 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 the land grant of, of West Manasseh, if you're interested in that. Continuing in verse 6, And I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. David is cultivating the loyalty of an important section way up north. What's the first word of verse 8? But... Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Isbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim, not very far from Jabez Gilead, and made him king over Gilead and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin. And then what's the last phrase? In all Israel. David shrewdly, shrewdly seeks the loyalty of Jabez Gilead. But there's a challenge. The commander of Saul's army is alive. And the commander of Saul's army <laughs> knows that Saul's youngest son is still living. He's a young, untrained, unequipped. He's not four, but he's not 70. There is no way he deserved to be king. There's no way he qualified to be king. But... The commander of Saul's army will not submit to David. If he's not going to submit to David, he has to lay down a challenge to David's rule. Logically, the son of Saul is the one who can challenge David's right to rule. It's this Bishah. And he takes him to Mahanaim. Now, Mahanaim, there's a lot. We, we studied that before. It, we, it, it's come up a couple of times. You don't, perhaps don't remember it. But it's on that east side of the Jordan River, too. Gilead is this whole east side, kind of what it's called at this time. It involves the land grant of West Manasseh, Gad, and part of Reuben. But that, that's where it is. So now what do you have? You have, this, did you notice as well, Benjamin? Did you see that? Yeah. At the end of verse 9, Benjamin. Because if you, again, you go to a map of the land, here's Judah, and here's Benjamin. It's a tiny, it's not, Benjamin's land grant is very small. It's right here. So what is that telling us? Judah's loyal to David. Everybody else is loyal to Ishbosheth. Now, I don't know how you read that. That's a crisis. That's a crisis for David. In terms of legitimacy, he has no legitimacy in the eyes of the other 11 tribes, including Benjamin. So it's going to be fascinating how David handles this. 
Are you, are you with me? And what I'm trying to paint the picture of how serious this is. Verse 10, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. At the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So all the author is doing here is contrasting. Ishbosheth is a king recognized by 11 tribes. David is king. Ishbosheth is going to rule for two years. David is going to rule in Hebron for over seven. How is this settled? How is this? It's a civil war. How is this going to be resolved? Verse 12 is called the Battle of Gibeon. Now, I hope you remember that. Gibeon is the hometown of Saul. Mahanim, Mahanaim is on the east side of the Jordan River. You know, not real close, but not real far away either. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. Gibeon is northwest of Jerusalem. Here's Jerusalem in the land grant of Benjamin. Gibeon is right here in the land grant of uh, the very eastern part, excuse me, western part of the land grant of Benjamin. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. Now, Joab, you're going to hear a lot about Joab. He is going to be throughout the rest of the book. He is the, let me rephrase that, he will become the commander-in-chief of David's army. But he is the key military guy for David. So a group, now when it says the servants of David, we don't know if it's all 600 of his army. We don't know, but it's many men. Where do they go? They go to Gibeon. And this is, what, this is, this is not unusual. You saw a little bit of that with Goliath and David back in 1 Samuel 17. So Abner, the son of Ner, who is heading up Ishbosheth's army, and Joab, who is actually the nephew of David, he's heading up David's army. They sit down around the pool at Gibeon. It's a coffee shop. They serve Starbucks coffee there. You can get a little roll if you want, or if you like the, you know, the cold brew, you can get that as well. I made all that up. But it's really because they're not going to fight. What are they going to do? It's going to be a battle of champions. It's not going to be full-fledged. The whole armies of Ishbosheth meet the whole armies of David. No, that's often in the ancient world. That's not how it works. You saw that with Goliath and David. Kind of like, and, a, it's kind of you know, like a talent show, isn't it? I'm sorry? Kind of like a talent show. A talent show? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Woody, that's an interesting metaphor of how you would try to uh, explain this. Um, well, a talent show in the sense that there are deadly, deadly consequences to who wins the talent show. Somebody's going to die. <laughs> but loosely speaking, yes. So look at the dialogue here. I, I'm running out of time, but look at, look at the dialogue to kind of get into this. In verse 14, Adner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. A proposal of hand-to-hand -hand combat, 
as kind of representative champions of each side. Joab said, let them arise. Then they rose and passed over by number, 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. Got the picture? And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called, it's a huge Hebrew name, Elkath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. That, what that means is the field of the sword. And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner, the son of Israel, were beaten before the servants of David. And the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. All right. In the trial by combat, David's 12 beat Ishbosheth's 12. Then the rest of the armies begin to fight. Abner and his three sons of Zeruiah are going to meet. Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. They're all nephews of David, if you want the blood relationship. That's not important. Now, Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. What does that mean? He was a marathon runner, but he was fast like a gazelle. Asael pursued Abner. So one of the three nephews of David takes out after Abner, who's running from the battle. And as he went, he neither turned to the right nor to the left from following Abner. And Abner looked behind him and said, is that you, Asael? He answered, it is I. Abner said to him, turn aside as to your right hand or to your left, and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asael would not turn aside from following. Abner said again, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then shall I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out of his back. He fell there and died where he was, and all who came to the place where Asael had fallen and died stood still. Okay, now what what we just see? Ab, Asael is chasing Abner. Abner keeps saying, stop chasing me. Don't you know that if we mean I'm going to kill you? Asael doesn't stop, and what, what's the end result? Abner kills Asael. One of David's nephews, the brother of Joab, the head of David's army, has been killed by Abner. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. The chase continues. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hills of Mamah, which lies before Gia on the wilderness of Gibeon, farther north, farther to the west. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the hill. What does that mean? A very significant number of military well-armed from the tribe of Benjamin have surrounded Abner. And Abner called to Joab, shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up their pursuit of your brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, the men stopped, and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. Joab was in a precarious situation. 
He knows it. So what does he do? He retreats. The battle is over. The Civil War ends. Verse 29. Abner and his men went all night at night through the Arabah. They're now heading south, east. They crossed the Jordan River, marching the whole morning. They came to Mahanaim. They're going back to where Isbosheth is. Joab returned from his pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Eshael. So in other words, this whole battle, David lost 19 men. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. They took up Eshael, buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. So they're back. There is no, the battle of Gibeon, in a very real sense, is a victory for Israel, for, uh, for Judah under David. But the commander of Ishbosheth's army, Abner, is not killed. And so he escapes, and so Joab goes back to Hebron. Now why is all of this important? <clears throat> is Abner going to remain loyal? To Ishbosheth. Is Abner, in light of his dismal failure at the Battle of Gibeon, his loss of so many men, is he going to continue to resist David? Or is he going to join David? If you want to know, you got to come back next week. Isn't this great? It's like a soap opera that your wives watch to get excited about the next program. Because what happens is a remarkable turn in the strategy that David has and the loyalty of his men. And there's a lot going on in chapter three. That's why I didn't want to start. It's very, it's kind of complicated, but it's extremely important. Because verse one tells us, David's growing stronger and stronger and the house of Saul weaker and weaker. David's going to win. But he's going to win it on his terms to the glory of God. And that's what chapter 3 is all about. Now, we did a lot this morning. Are you, are you with me on what we're doing? Okay. We're seeing, we're seeing God honoring David's temperament and his shepherd leadership in, in, in showing the people the kind of king he's going to be. It, it's just, it is so atypical of everything else that's going on in the ancient Eastern world at this time. And of course, it should be because they're a follower of the one true God. Okay, are there any questions? Everybody okay? We'll immediately get started with Chapter 3 then next week. All right, we're over time here. Right, let me pray. Lord, we thank you for the privilege that we have really to study the Bible together. And we are seeing how you have shaped and molded David for 15 years. Where, as we just read a moment ago, he was crowned the king there in Hebron of Judah. You've been preparing him. You've been uh, giving him the skills of leadership in situation after situation after situation. You've been building his character, and you've been deepening and growing his faith and trust in you. He's ready to be king. And we see, Lord, just from the beginning of chapter 2, he didn't act impulsively. He wanted to make sure that he was doing what you wanted him to do. 
And we will see that in David's character for the next 10 chapters until we get to chapter 11. But that's part of the story, and we'll see that as we go through these, these, these chapters. He's a great character, one of the great models of Scripture, someone who follows you very carefully, but also we see what happens when an individual who's loyal to you momentarily turns his back on you, and that has severe consequences. But Lord, you always loved David. He was a man after your own heart, and we see how you've grown, grown and matured him to be the man you want him to be. One of the great, great rulers of the ancient world, of course, and one of the great rulers of Israel. Help each one of us as we go into this world. It's a dark world, filled with so much evidence of sin and rebellion against you. We are your light. We're your salt. We want to represent you well, not only in our words that we speak, but in our actions. To be the men of God you're calling us to be. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. See you next week.